Introducing the new Poloniex trading system, now with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and joining us today on the other side of the mic, across the table from me, yeah, in person, which is very exciting, Brett Harrison, president at FTX US. Thanks so much for carving out some time to join the show. For you, Frank, anytime. Appreciate it, even after my my mean tweet. So I appreciate <laughs> the, the, the generosity and, and sort of gracious demeanor twitter's a rough place you have to uh to be careful it's getting rougher isn't it it's, yes it seems like uh ftx fud is at an all-time high it's like the the price to pay of being very public and trying to do the best for people online i think i used to talk about this right before we started recording but you know every exchange goes through their period of mm -hmm. they're out there they're public they want to do the best for their customers they're engaging with their customers all the time which means that if people are unhappy with something or there's an incident, people will come and talk with you online and they'll be very vocal. And the levels of civility vary depending on the uh, online personality. And I think that's just the, the price to being as open as we are. And I think it's ultimately good that we're going to stay out there and listen to feedback and try to get better. It's like a double-edged sword, right? I think for the actual customers, uh, there's one account, Base Carbon, I think he tweeted this not too long ago, which is... In no other industry do you have the CEOs and presidents of financial services, technology companies just constantly on a not not only daily basis, but almost like hourly basis engaging with um, the sort of quote unquote community. Yeah, actually, that particular person, we, we talk on Twitter a bunch and it, it was like two weeks ago and he said something is wrong with my the max button on my app, like, <laughs> Brett, can you fix? And I was like, hold on. And then like, I went into Slack and said, hey, you know, 
base carbon says this thing is broken. They're like, no problem. We'll have a fix up in 15 minutes. And we had a fix and he was like, holy crap, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it is the sort of flip side, but like, what are people, is it mostly the like technical issues or is it seems like more of this underpinning, you know, philosophical question of whether or not they're aligned with the values of FTX or the values of Sam as, um, this sort of person who's trying to expand an empire to then do good later down the road. I feel like people, maybe since they're not doing good right now, there's like a bit of, there's a bit of salt. Is that what it is? Like, is that how you would? <laughs> yeah, I would say it's just a mix all across the yeah. board. I mean, you're right. Like crypto markets down. People are concerned about the direction of the industry. There's all the regulatory chatter, which makes people feel like there might not be a future home for crypto in, in certain respects. And people are just nervous. And so they're they're looking for an outlet to express their frustration. And sometimes that can be the acute issue of a tech problem on the exchange, which, you know, that's fair. We should get feedback when that kind of stuff happens and we should get better and improve as an exchange. That's always something that we want to do. And some of it, you're right, is could be more kind of general paranoia about like this company is getting bigger, being yeah. concerned about like big tech, big finance yeah. or the capital B and F, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's understandable. I, I feel like I empathize with that kind of the retail trader online. And I think the only way to, to help that is just to engage and to listen to people and make sure they feel heard when they have problems and fix them. Is regulation something that you're worried about? We've seen chair Gensler come out and, I think there are reasons to be worried because this is a pivotal moment where depending on the direction of regulation, it could end up forcing more projects you know, into the shadows outside the U.S. Think about yeah. all the intellectual property that begins in the U.S. and then moves overseas, you know, companies setting up either in Europe or on islands, <laughs> things like this. And uh, I think that's something to be concerned about. On the flip side of that, I think there's a reason to be optimistic finally, because there's real movement and there's support for crypto. Yeah. And I think this is something new we're seeing in the last six months-ish. And I do think FTX has had a lot to do with this simply by just showing up in DC and talking to people and educating them and putting a face to the industry and Look how many bills have been introduced in Congress relating to crypto, stable coins. It that that gives me reason to be hopeful more than just sort of nervous about, you know, the general direction. This would give me anxiety if I ran and operated an exchange where they said here, I think this is Chair Gensler or his office that most of these crypto tokens are securities and that ultimately a lot of these crypto exchanges are going to have to register each of their functions, exchange, broker-dealer, custodial functions. I know exchanges or many of them already have done that to some degree, but no exchange is a national, is registered as a national securities exchange. Do you think that exchanges will have to do that? I think some kind of registration is inevitable. Um, let me unpack that a little bit. Mm. So first of all, on the token listing front, we have always been super conservative on FTX US. Uh, people always ask all, online all the time, oh, you know, why haven't you listed this token, that token? These other exchanges have this token. Why haven't you listed it? And the answer is because we've been nervous about exactly this fact, which is that the discretion of deciding what to list is on the exchange. 
the discretion of trying to run you know the Howey test and figure out what is a security and what isn't a security is the burden of that is on the exchanges but that doesn't necessarily prevent future enforcement if the regulatory agency in this case disagrees and so that's why we've really scaled back in terms of our listings and we have you know fewer than 30 tokens on our exchange and we think that's fortunately or unfortunately like the long-term play that will work for us until there's better clarity in terms of what registration is going to be required, if you even ignore the questions of the tokens that might be uh, ambiguous in terms of whether they're securities or not, there's a clear use case for tokenized securities in the U.S. You hear about companies wanting to explore tokenized treasury products or tokenized uh, you know, different yield-bearing securities but in token form or even you know, companies that want to issue their shares or some kind of dividend-yielding instrument as a digital asset. And I think there needs to be a space for that. And that would have to flow through the SEC, which regulates securities issuance and the exchange trading of those securities. And so then the question is, okay, well, then what, what do you do? And is there currently a regime that supports such registration and exchange trading? And the answer is really no, there isn't. There's, for example, the S1 Mm-hmm. registration process for a company that wants to IPO. How does that work if you're registering a protocol token? You know, there's no board. You know, there's not like company filings. You know, there are different questions, though, that are also important that wouldn't be asked by an S1. For example, what's the max supply of the token? And can that supply ever be changed? Who has the keys to the smart contract mm-hmm. that the token's deployed under? Who are the developers? Who owns the code? What's on the roadmap? There are legitimate questions that need to be answered for the public so that the public can invest with knowledge into one of these instruments. And so what we expect is that there'll be some sort of new registration process that will help spell out exactly what you need to disclose in order to have fair fair disclosure for the average investor. And then for exchanges, there will be some process. And maybe it's like a modified national securities exchange registration. Of course, that's going to require a lot of different exemptions and changes. There's, you know, what does a transfer agent mean in, in crypto? crypto? The broker-dealer being separate uh, mm-hmm. from that owns the customer versus the matching engine, that's not something that's typical in crypto. To what extent will that be required? What about custody? Will there need to be central clearing between the exchanges? Will there need to be order protection, price protection across multiple exchanges. There's so many open questions here. And I think that's that's really where the, the gray area of current regulation starts to really become visible. So this new crypto version of an S1 would be something that protocols would have to submit through some means. Maybe there's a governance vote around it, but even talking about it, you, you it becomes very clear that there needs to be some form of reconstruction because you can't just fit the square into this hole. Exactly. But it it should be said that I think a lot of token projects would register Mm -hmm. and quite happily do so if there was a clear process for it because they want to get listed on U.S. exchanges. They want to be able to operate their company in the U.S. without worrying about enforcement action down the road. They would like for their tokens to have security-like properties. Um, look at all the NFTs that got released in in sort of the first real wave of of kind of like the NFT summer last summer of you know 
we'd like to be able to distribute the secondary fees from NFT trading to the holders. Well, if that has security-like properties, you know, I think those NFT projects would have liked to register their token if it meant that they could evolve their incentive scheme in a way that fit their business objectives. But until that exists, people are just always going to be concerned about launching those kinds of projects in the U.S. So walk us through a little bit about how we got here. You know, when you think about when you first met Sam and he came to you with the proposition to start an FTX in the U.S., an affiliate of of this more international firm, when you think back on what the original roadmap was versus what the firm looks like today, how aligned are those two? Yeah, it's a great question. So FTX US was started actually a little bit before I joined the company. And the thinking there was always, well, okay, hold on. We're not in the US, but the US is the largest market in the world for financial trading. It also has the largest retail investing class in the world. And we're not serving those customers at all from FTX.com. So what do we do? And of course, the first goal was let's do the simplest thing possible, which is just offer a few spot tokens, you know, to USD or USDC or USDT to US customers. And, you know, that by and large worked. I mean, we, we were able to launch the exchange. And over the last you know year and a half, we've grown that from you know, tens of thousands of customers to millions of customers. Which I'm which I I am not now surprised by, but maybe a year ago I was surprised. There were so many international exchanges who tried to make a push into the US and right. it just didn't work. Whether it was I mean, I can we can we can say very firmly, um, what was it? Huobi, right? They literally left the country, uh Bybit, I think as well. Bitflyer. Bitflyer, that's right. Binance. Binance. And, you know, there's it's been a much harder slog for some of these firms. What do you think? Market share for you guys in the U.S. is maybe like 15%? I don't think we're quite there, but you know? we're, I want to say, 7 to 8%, I think. And we're the fourth or fifth largest in the U.S. now. In the U.S., okay. Yeah. And you're right, it's difficult to talk about the the retail trading apps for crypto that actually don't end up on exchange, right? Most of those work by sort of like PFOF schemes where they're basically yeah. sending the orders to networks of market makers mm-hmm. and, you know, just taking kind of the, the tightest spread of all the market makers, widening it out by a bit, and that's how people get filled. So that's sort of like an unaccounted for portion of the total crypto volume. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean... There's a combination of things. I think I don't think there's like a silver bullet to how we've been able to grow. It's been a combination of the reputation from the international exchange mm-hmm. and that reputation carrying over to the institutions that provide the majority of the volume on both exchanges. So remember, FTX globally has around three times the total volume of Coinbase mm-hmm. with about one twentieth of the users. So the average FTX customer is trading something like 60 times the average customer of Coinbase. So it's just a different demographic of trader, like the real, the institutional, semi-professional trader versus uh, the kind of retail, uh, more occasional trader. So bringing those institutions to the U.S. exchange, having really great customer support and you know being that presence on Twitter that will answer mm-hmm. a question and fix a problem in, in the nick of time, the marketing efforts. I think played a huge role in the way that we were able to leapfrog a bunch of other exchanges. In the US, especially, trust really matters. And if you're going to 
be a crypto exchange that people are going to use for their first time ever trading crypto, it's got to be a name that they recognize. Otherwise, yeah. what they usually consider crypto to be is, oh, this exchange got hacked or these keys got lost and I'm not sure if I trust this new thing I've never heard of. Yeah. So a lot of those early marketing pushes were really to get people to know us and to sort of do like proxy due diligence. So, you know, imagine what Major League Baseball had to do to get to trust yeah. FTX with their kind of time-honored name as a you know a fixture of American life, and that kind of then translates to okay, if, if Major League Baseball yeah. has done the due diligence on FTX, then you know I I would trust them too to put my first fifty dollars into crypto, and so that has also helped. I'm looking at the volume data. I think you're above Gemini here. Binance US is actually pretty high, twelve billion in July. Yeah, Binance US just. Uh, cut their fees for a few tokens to zero. And so that mm. definitely pumped volume for a short while. Yeah. Not not a huge difference though. So what what sort of um Well, I sorry, I think I didn't really answer the end of your question, which is, you know, now how does the vision yeah. of the company compare to where it is today? So I think that one thing we really learned over time was that Yes, it's exciting to be in the spot crypto business, but that's also very competitive and it's hard to differentiate yourself among all the different competitors. And you're right, those aren't just exchanges, they're mm -hmm. retail trading apps, they are these kind of one-click on-ramps like MoonPay. I mean, there, there's yeah. like a lot of competition in the conversion from USD to crypto token business. Mm -hmm. What we realized was that we could take as a company the combination of our technology and our personnel's experience in traditional finance mm -hmm. to sort of make a hard turn to the left and move towards the traditional finance space and see what we can do there. So the two biggest examples here are obviously futures, where we are we're basically applying to be able to offer margin in the US on futures and options. And those are just straight CFTC licensed centralized traded derivatives. Looks just like the CME and ICE. Of course, with our different risk model and 24-7 operation and direct-to-customer operations. And the second is in stocks and doing what we think is the first retail app to ever do, which is uh, to go from crypto to stocks as opposed to stocks to crypto and try to use a lot of our what we've learned that customers want in a product to apply to that traditional world. And so that's, I think, what is starting to differentiate ourselves, for example, from Coinbase, which we think is making a turn to the right in terms of crypto, where they are really trying to help build out the DeFi ecosystem. Yeah. They're investing in Web3 development tools. They have Coinbase Cloud. They have the Coinbase Wallet. They're letting you connect to dApps from Coinbase Wallet. So I think there's a, there's plenty of room in this industry for these different companies to exist and occupy different worlds. And for FTX, the vision has really evolved into how can we really take over and change the face of traditional finance? Introducing the new Poloniex trading system with 30 times faster order matching, 10 times faster transactions, an enhanced user interface, and even more comprehensive features. Trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, and over 30 other perpetual swap contracts with up to 100x leverage on Poloniex futures and earn staking rewards on a variety of tokens. Trade like a pro on Poloniex. For more information, visit poloniex.com now. 
Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white, and Woodland Green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. So would you say you're more envious of the user bases of like a Fidelity or a TD Ameritrade or even a Robinhood than you would be, you know, FTX's 6.6 billion volumes to Coinbase's 60 billion, so 10x. Is that... Is the Coinbase sort of the big enchilada you want to take down or the, or the other I would, group? I would say we're envious of all the user bases <laughs> that we wish we had. But I think I can't speak for the strategy at you know, Coinbase or Gemini or, or any of these places. But I imagine they're probably on average less interested in getting into traditional stocks trading and trying to win the average Fidelity customer um, for kind of captive brokerage services than we are. And so that could be like an entire group of customers that we would be happy to be able to acquire that can kind of exist alongside Coinbase continuing to operate, you know, their crypto exchange for retail customers. Mm -hmm. And when you think about like the individual investor, it's the, the individual investor has become, you know, a force in the markets in a way that sure. we haven't seen before. Is that good for markets? I mean, is it, or is it really just, okay, more dumb money on the other side of smart money? I think it's good. And I think that the idea of dumb money versus smart money, I think is, I think it's antiquated for the current world where there's so much information available now through the internet. It's hard to be cliche, but this blur between retail and institutional is, I mean, only getting blurrier. Mm. So uh, to give you an example, we spoke to someone who said, and I can't tell you like the, the person or the exchange, but like among the top five traders on X exchange is a college student who wrote a trading bot on his laptop and runs it from his dorm room. And is that person retail or institutional? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they're not an institution. I would not say that a college student is an institution. Are you trying to win his business? Not not directly. <laughs> but I think like the idea of that crypto has created this middle class. And I don't mean middle class like economically, but the, like between the retail and institution, the kind of person who they might be able to move $5 million a week in crypto, which feels not retail. 
but mm. they're not an institution. They're not like taking outside investment. They, they've built up some wealth by investing in crypto over time. They've built up trading sophistication. They have that sophistication because they have all the tools available to them. They have the full order book for free. They can connect to every exchange for free. They can run open source trading bots across all these different exchanges. You see all these like open source MEV bots and DeFi now. I mean, this kind of open source ethos combined with the lack of a lot of the barriers to entry there is in traditional finance, where if you want to compete at all in stocks, I mean, you need to have co-located trading bots in Secaucus, Mawa, and Carteret in New Jersey, and you need to pay millions of dollars a month for market data, and you need to find a really good prime broker. It just doesn't have to exist in crypto. So, you know, that I think that retail class, like, being activated is good for the market because I think it's really helped, like, level the playing fields compared to all the traditional players that have, like, very entrenched like advantages from building up over 20, 30 years all of their trading infrastructure. Mm. What sort of your like management philosophy? How do you, you know, this is the first time I believe you've ever been a, a president or running like an organization of your own. How do you sort of, how do you do that job? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a lot of overlap to how I've run teams at previous companies. So like at Citadel Securities, under me was about 100 developers. And I had a smaller team, but still a reasonably sized team at Jane Street doing algorithmic trading systems. And my managed philosophy is that the manager's job is not to really make decisions for the team. It's to get everything out of the way for the people under you so that they can make and execute those decisions. Mm -hmm. And a sort of corollary to that is that as a manager, your job should be to push all of the responsibility and the authority and the decision-making kind of as far down the org as you can. Because in, in a traditional type of company, you might have a structure where you have someone who's fairly new, mm -hmm. um, you have a small team that's kind of the closest to the product, but if they don't have the authority and the decision-making capability, then they think they want to do something, but then they have to like run it up the chain. And by the time it kind of reaches kind of up the chain and back down again with an answer, first of all, you're probably not going to end up with the correct decision because the people with the ultimate, like, oh, actually do it this slightly different way, aren't the one actually closest to the problem kind of living and breathing it every single moment. There's a diffuse responsibility problem where the people who are really making that technology don't feel the kind of the ownership over the result. Mm. And then also just from a time perspective, things just take much longer to get done. And I think in crypto, if you're going to let your own company, you know, stop you from being nimble and really produce results at a fast pace, you're going to die as a company. It just this move, industry moves way too fast. So the goal is to kind of find as far down as you can go, the kind of person who you feel you can trust with the sort of like the management responsibility of getting something done and then let them feel the ownership over the outcome. And maybe that's like the PNL of the business, or maybe it's the number of users who are, you know, you know, using that particular product or customer satisfaction rating. I mean, there's a lot of different metrics that one can, you know, assign to let them kind of feel that the success or failure of that of of the business that they're running, but don't pull it all up to me. I mean, that's that's 
ultimately going to be the, the worst decision. What about non-technical questions or external questions like working through the BlockFi deal as an example? Sure. That's got to be an all-hands-on-deck sort of, I don't know, problem is the right word, but decision. How did that decision come about? Sure. And that had to have happened very quickly. Right. And I think for those kinds of things, the natural setup at, at FTX and the, thing with, the way that things have organically evolved is usually kind of a person or two are the kind of key people kind of running point on the deal. Because if it becomes like a nine person, you know, endeavor and you're constantly trying to schedule like this meeting and that meeting around everyone's like various, you know, busy lives, again, you're not going to be able to act quickly enough. There was a decision that had to be made very quickly. So it'll be a person or two. And then kind of in between those sort of key decision points will be a slightly broader discussion with kind of like the top management of the company to talk about, well, you know, here's what we're hearing. Here's what they're saying is this is sort of what we think the deal price would look like. Does this sound right to people? What do people think are the risks of doing this? What are people hearing from the other parts of the industry? Um, and so then it will be kind of a, a kind of a slightly wider sort of circle of trust among the management. But for a deal or for any kind of project that requires such agility like that, you really need to kind of restrict it to a couple of people running point. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of I mean, changes in, I mean, the industry has just been crazy these past few months. What was your reaction to, I can't remember if the last time we spoke was before, after Three Arrows, because everything just happened so quickly, but does anything surprise you anymore? Not only does it not really surprise me, but I think for those who have seen, like, MF Global mm -hmm. and Archegos and mm -hmm. Lehman and just all the different ways in which a large firm so can such blow a smaller up. scale. Yeah, and this is at a smaller scale. And I think it's these are good learning opportunities for the industry of, you know, if we were a hundred times bigger, what would have happened? Yeah. What sorts of guardrails do we need in place? What sorts of questions do we need to start asking of companies that want to operate in this space? Are you asking tougher questions of your counterparties now? I think FTX always was, and I mean, I don't want to just pat ourselves on the back, but like, we come from a risk management background as a company. You know, we, we are people who have operated in financial companies. I mean, Jane Street and Citadel and these companies are used to taking large, multi-billion dollar overnight bets. Mm -hmm. And you always have to operate under the assumption that things can go, you know, 40% the other direction. And if so, you don't want to have to come in the next day and say, you know, see you guys game over. It's got to be, okay, you know, we can take this loss and it will be sad, but we'll learn from it. And so thinking about how to kind of manage risk is just core to the FTX ethos. I mean, that's why we run the risk engine the way we do, that we make sure that we are always taking off risk from customers who like their accounts are going underwater for small amounts at a time as the market is moving against them so that they suffer the minimum loss so that losses are never mutualized among other people, that we're never ending up in some gigantic hole that we have to fill. I mean, compare like this to London Metals Exchange, which was like the core opposite, where like yeah. one single trader was so over leveraged short on nickel that when nickel exploded, there was a giant hole to fill. And when they asked them, that trader, if they could fill the hole, the guy said, no, mm. we'll wait until the market looks better for me to kind of give you your money. And they had to bust $4 billion worth of trades. And what else could they possibly do? We will never get into that. I should never say never. We will never get into that particular situation because we are so careful about risk management.
I think you have a hard out, but I mean, it's it speaks to your schedule, how much it's changed, how how much more demanding your your schedule is, and how much time how time is becoming ever more limited or scarce. How do you balance your your sort of different responsibilities? You don't sleep that much, <laughs> not really. Um, <laughs> but how has your sort of lifestyle changed? I would say a couple of things. So one is the public facing part of the job is very new for me compared to my past experience because it wasn't possible earlier. You know, the firms I worked at were amazing at internal communication, but external communication was cut off. I, I left, you know, Citadel Securities on May 11th. The next day at May 12th, I joined FTX. Sam said, what's your Twitter handle? I said, I don't have a Twitter handle. And he said, that's going to be a problem. And so I made one. Like The whole world was new to me. And now you know, there's interviews and public appearances and conferences and going on Twitter and answering questions or doing an AMA on Reddit or whatever it is. That's a new part of the job for me. And so in order to make sure that I can continue to function well in the main part of like running the business and, and you know, occasionally doing programming and developing and everything else, I, I try to kind of bunch these things together. So like we're here in Salt, at Salt in New York, try to get a lot of the sort of interviews and meetings and things like that kind of really tightly crunched into a couple of days so that when I go back to Chicago, I can focus more on the team and, and the product and everything else. And then similarly with like my home life, I think one thing I, like my wife Hannah and I have like pretty religiously set is that there's a time period every day that's for us and not for work. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. every day is like, okay, we're going to we're gonna talk, we're going to make dinner, we're going to hang out with our son, we're going to put him to bed, we're going to talk some more. And, like, that's, that's sort of our time and it's precious and everything else can wait. Now, that leaves a lot more time in the rest of the day to do work and that, that's fine, but you have to really carve out a schedule for you and make it a routine so that you don't end up slipping into... Uh, kind of further and further decay from the real world because this can be a tough industry on people. And, you know, again, like spending every day on, online and hearing millions of customers like talk about your product and want things and you have to kind of keep mentally healthy. And I think having that schedule is really important. Yeah. And um, I guess having, you know, eight dogs might help with the sort of stress. Well, five you know, dogs five and six cats. And six cats. Yeah. And so what's the feeding situation like oh down down to a science down to a science um the the cats get fed every day at five okay. and they get fed at the same time but they have special spots around the house to minimize kind of conflict and competition between the different <laughs> pairs that have particular political dynamics yeah cats are very complicated creatures yeah so you have to like navigate their their idiosyncrasies. Yeah, it's like this one dogs wants, are easier. This one wants to eat under the chair in this other room because otherwise they feel like concerned about the other cats looking over their shoulder. Yeah, you got to get in the game, Frank. The cat game. <laughs> the cat game. I have two dogs. No, maybe I would. I like cats. I have no problem with cats. Remember Meet the Fockers, where he's like, I love cats. He's like, he hates cats. Remember that movie. <laughs> one of my favorite movies. Anyway, Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we'll leave it at we'll leave it at the cat cat commentary. <laughs> Once again, we've been joined today by our guest Brett Harrison, president at FTX US.
Thanks again. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.